United States Institute of Peace, along with Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124, now present their weekly podcast. The U.S. is obviously trying to figure out how to contain the spread of COVID-19, the coronavirus here in the U.S., but that does not mean we should take our eye off the ball internationally. We'll talk about that now. Nancy Lindborg joins us, president of the United States Institute of Peace, tweeting at Nancy Lindborg. Nancy, uh, welcome back. Thanks for being on POTUS today. Good to be here with you, Tim. Glad you're staying is, safe there. We are indeed. It's, it's not uh, the kind of thing we hear quite as much about. We do hear Great Britain and, of course, Germany with Chancellor Merkel. And today we heard that uh, Prince Charles evidently has tested positive for COVID-19. But we don't hear as much about places like Yemen, Venezuela, South Sudan, Somalia. But you're saying we should be focusing on at least understanding and, and watching these places. Why so? Well, we have been talking a lot about the struggle here in the U.S., the difficulty to get protective gear, to um, get tests. It is infinitely worse in the kind of places you just named, Yemen, Venezuela, Syria, Somalia, places where the healthcare systems have been not only decimated by violent conflict, but in places like Syria and Yemen, systematically targeted so that they literally have no intensive unit uh, beds or respirators or protective gear. Um, UNICEF estimates 3 billion people lack access to hand-washing facilities, and these are places that have those 25 million refugees and 40 million internally placed people we've been talking about where social distancing is really not an option. So we're starting to see the spread of the virus uh, move across the Middle East and Africa. Um, there are cases reported now in 43 of the countries throughout Africa, and they are just far, far less prepared to address it, to prevent it, uh, uh, and certainly not to treat those who come down with it. And if we sometimes in this country are concerned about a gap in, in our, our trust of our leaders, I can only imagine it's even worse in some of these countries. You know, I um, ran the USAID task force for the 2014 Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And one of the things we quickly learned is that Ebola, of course, is much more deadly, but it's quite easy to avoid through behavior change. People were not understanding and hearing those messages for how to stay safe because they so deeply distrusted their government. They had emerged from several decades of conflict and they they just didn't believe uh, what the central government was saying. On top, you know, so they continued to do very unsafe practices. And that was coupled with the, the data was so imprecise. It was hard really to understand what was going on outside of the metropolitan areas. Both of those uh, lessons and both of those conditions apply very much to this huge swath of fragile states across Africa and the Middle East. Nancy, the, uh, the, obviously there's a humanitarian concern here. Is there also a security component to this? There absolutely is because, again, you're seeing the possibility of this pandemic you know, sweeping through countries that are already struggling with very weak and illegitimate governments where how the governments respond could deepen those social fissures and 
exacerbates simmering conflicts that already exist. It's interesting um, in Nigeria, for example, the government has actually responded pretty quickly. They have a health system that enables them to get out and issue those messages and do some of the lockdown practices. And there's been an interesting backlash where people are saying, hey, if you can be so so proactive about these kinds of measures, how come you're not able to be more proactive in the basic uh, social services that big parts of that country do not receive from their government? Um, and we're seeing in places like Sudan, where they have just had this um, incredible sweep of people power that overthrew this quite repressive regime of decades, that that transition is imperiled now because of um, the the uh, inability of people to continue to move around, some of the threats that the repressive security forces will come back in. Um, and we've seen that that amazing year of people power that so many of those movements that were seeking to hold their governments accountable have been silenced by the virus because it's just unwise uh, to go out and do street protests these days. Um, so there's this whole dimension of conflict uh, that will complicate, you know, the lack of infrastructure and health systems um, and threaten that there could be renewed social unrest on top of a, a devastating pandemic. Nancy Lindborg is with us, president of the United States Institute of Peace. And, and obviously in your job, a lot of what you do is aspirational. And you're kind of a global glass half full kind of person. So I guess there are some opportunities, even though there are challenges with the with moments like this. Yes. Yeah, so let's end with a, a little more of a moment of, of hope. And um, we heard on Monday that the U.N. Secretary General uh, Guterres made a call for a global ceasefire. Um, and he said, you know, we have a common enemy of the virus to fight. Now is the time to lay down your weapons. And while it may sound, um, you know, like a, a Pollyannish call, in, in fact, we just heard that yesterday uh, the, the guerrilla group, uh, the long fighting guerrilla group in the Philippines has laid their arms down in response to the, the call. And, you know, I uh, was very involved with the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004 and recall that that long-running conflict in Indonesia with the province of Aceh was resolved after that uh, significant disaster. In 2011, U.S. Institute of Peace published a book called Pandemics and Peace uh, by uh, the author William Long, who looked at a number of case studies in which these kinds of public health crises and conflict zones, in fact, did result in new kinds of cooperation, uh, new levels of um, joint action across usual fault lines of conflict. And, um, you know, one of the ones that still continued to resonate has been in the Middle East. If you remember, in 2006, there was this outbreak of the bird flu there. And um, Israeli, Palestinian and Jordanian health officials came together to share information to prevent that spread. And they continued through the outbreaks of 2009 um, so that all three jurisdictions were able to come together and, and, and have a more successful effort. You know, the hope is that that will continue today with the Israelis, the Palestinians, the Jordanians. They certainly need to be very vigilant. An outbreak in a place like Gaza would be absolutely devastating.
Interesting. In the week uh, that we saw the vice president, I'm sorry, the secretary of state, Mike, uh, Mike Pompeo visiting um, uh, Afghanistan, we see the possibility of the Taliban also um, alleging or pledging to allow safe passage for health workers. That would be uh, that would be wonderful. And of course, there's a very fragile but but encouraging peace process underway in Afghanistan. It would be terrible for that to to fall apart. And if the Taliban are willing to make those kinds of gestures, we should we should welcome it. You know, the the reverse of that, of course, is what Al Shabaab is doing in Somalia, where they are not transmitting the health messages to areas under their control. And we saw, of course, in 2012 how they restricted humanitarian access so that Somalia tipped into famine. Um, You know, this is an opportunity to understand that there's a greater enemy, that all of us um, have this common threat from the kind of pandemic that health officials have feared for decades, you know, an easily transmissible, you know, airborne disease with the fatality rates that we're seeing, and, and it's nowhere near the Ebola levels, but they're significant, and even our health facilities are overwhelmed. So what will happen in these fragile states is, is devastating to contemplate, and the hope is that it, everyone uses this opportunity to put down their arms and think differently about conflict. Estimates are that we spend $13 trillion on violent conflict globally. That's a U.N. number. You know, it's a wiggly statistic, but it gives you a sense of the magnitude. $13 trillion. Think if we were able to repurpose that at the face of this economic and health crisis that we're facing right now. Nancy, as always, thank you for joining us on POTUS. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for still being there. Yes, thank you. And thank you for being there. Nancy Lindborg, president of the United States Institute of Peace, joining us this morning to discuss the international effect of the COVID-19 coronavirus. She is tweeting at Nancy Lindborg, L-I-N-D-B-O-R-G. This podcast has been brought to you by the United States Institute of Peace and Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124.